to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks, Getting the Odds on Your Side. We've previously done The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks, talking all about the world of investing and the most important thing of which there were 18 or so most important things you need to think about when investing. This time, he's talking about the cycle. He's talking about the booms and the busts and everything in between. If you think about cycles, they happen everywhere in your environment. In the winter, it's actually colder and snowier than the summer. The daytime, it's lighter than the night. And because of what's happening on the outside, you're probably going to act a little bit differently. You might dress a little bit warmer in the winter and you might chuck on your, your singlet and your board shorts for the summer. So as humans, we've got an ability to understand and recognize these patterns around us. It influences our decisions. It increases our pleasure, reduces our pain. These natural cycles that happen in the environment also happen in the economies in that companies and markets they also have regularly recurring patterns that are happening all the time so based on what's happening on the outside there is an optimal way to act and a lot of the time your psychology gets in the way of what's the most fruitful way of acting so understanding where you're in the cycle is extremely important and then you're going to act differently based on where you are you might invest differently you might look at buying a property or not, you might look at starting a new business or not. So we're going to cover all these kind of things in the episode. So let's start off with the basics. What is a cycle in economic terms? So if you think about a cycle, basically it operates around a midpoint. There's a midpoint, which is generally thought of this ongoing trend or norm. But aside from the long-term trends, there are short-term periods where it's well and truly above the long-term trend and there's short-term periods where it's well and truly below the long-term trend. So I guess visually, if you think back to your uh, year nine, year 10 maths, think of trigonometry, the sine graph where it starts at zero, it goes up to one, back down to zero, then down to negative one, then back up to zero. So it's this cycle of going up and then back to the middle and then down. So in economic terms, there's this expansion where it goes up, it booms at the top, then there's this contraction back to the midpoint, then there's this recession down to the bust at the bottom before there's a recovery back to the midpoint again. So that's what happens with the cycle. So why study cycles? So the odds are going to change as our position in the cycle changes, meaning how you act is different depending on where you are. If we don't change our investment stance as these things change, we're going to be passive regarding cycles. In other words, we're ignoring the opportunity to put the odds in our favor. So if you think of it like a lottery or like pulling the the ticket out of the bowl, it's not saying that if you know where you are in the cycle that you're 100% going to know exactly what's going to happen next, but you can have the odds in your favor. Perhaps at the top of the cycle, the odds of pulling out a winning lottery ticket are like 30 to 70 compared to if you're at the bottom of the cycle, perhaps your odds of winning that lottery are more like 70 to 30. So by having an understanding of where you are in the cycle at this point in time, you've got a better understanding of what the odds of success are. So the average investor doesn't really pay attention to where they are. They just go bang. But the superior investor does. They ask the question, are we in the beginning of an upswing of the cycle or are we in the late stages where it's going to go down? And remember, as it goes down, the increasing lottery tickets increases of the chance of you winning. Or they might ask the question, are the investors out there, are they driven by fear at the moment or are they driven by greed? And another contrarian example is when people are driven by greed, that's probably the time for you not to be greedy. And when everyone's fearful, that's probably the time for you to be jumping in. Or another question is, is the market overheated and overpriced or is it frigid and cheap? So taken together, does our current position in the cycle mean we should be really defensive and worried or should we be out there being aggressive, leveraging up and going hard? 
So that's what this book is all about. It's understanding the cycle and in turn understanding when should you be aggressive and when should you be defensive. And the people who aren't attentive to these market cycles, they're going to be aggressive when they should be defensive and vice versa. It's only by having a true understanding of all of these cycles and how they play out in the world that you get a better understanding of when you should be putting your chips on the table and when you should be saving a few bullets in the chamber. Just yeah. add a few <laughs> different metaphors together. There. Yeah, there's a lot of metaphors jumping in again. He says cycles are inevitable. So if you think about on the upswing of the cycle, everyone's thinking, oh, this time it's different. It's mm. going to keep going on, going on forever. It happens a lot. If you think about back to the GFC days, people thought, you know, this party's never going to stop. Same with Australian housing. We point over to what happened in Ireland and the US and we think, oh, nah, for Australia, the fundamentals are different and it just is going to go on forever. But every time there's people saying this time it's different and there's no such thing as a cycle that's going to go down, that's actually the time to be the most fearful of what's happening. Yeah, people are also probably thinking, you know, with all this technology and all this innovation and all these changes in the business world, everything's getting better, everything's going up, companies are becoming more profitable. They think, you know, this time it's different. There's a fundamental shift in what's happening around us. This, you know, the longest bull market in history, it's just going to keep keep riding and keep going up until something unexpected comes along, but that's that inevitably there is something that is going to switch that cycle back to the downswing. One element of cycles is that they don't repeat but they rhyme. This comes from a quote from Mark Twain. He says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. What they mean is that the details are going to vary from one event to another in a given category of history, but the underlying themes and the reasons are always going to be consistent. And this is true for the financial crises back in 2008. Yeah. Well, if you think of the GFC, you know, 2007, 2008, when the bubble eventually popped, it was largely because there was the banks were issuing a huge number of unsound subprime mortgages in that they were issuing the money out to people that perhaps shouldn't have had money issued to them and then they were selling off this risk to somebody else. And so this was what caused a massive, massive, massive crash, one of the biggest crashes in history. But what Marx is saying is it's probably never going to happen again. People know what the risks were. People are going to know, look, you're not allowed to do this anymore. You can't be uh, issuing out these subprime mortgages. So people might think, oh, it's never going to happen again. But of course, whilst the specifics of the GFC won't happen again, something different is going to come along. The crash isn't going to repeat itself exactly, but for similar reasons, it is going to rhyme. Yeah, so the details in this case that aren't going to happen again because everyone's aware of them is like the subprime mortgage crashes and and you know packaging them up and so much leverage in the financial markets in that case. But the rhyme here is just optimism, risk mm-hmm. aversion. It's different this time, that kind of mm-hmm. talk. Generous capital markets, meaning everyone's just lending out shitloads of money and leveraging up and borrowing and borrowing. But yeah, the exact subprime mortgage, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. So in this episode, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the economics of the cycle, how the cycle plays out in the long term, but then also in the short term. We're going to talk about how governments and central banks respond to these cycles. We're going to talk about how businesses are affected by the cycles. We're going to talk about how credit and loans are affected by the cycles. We're going to talk about real estate and then we're going to cap it off with the investor psychology and how investor psychology plays out at different phases of the cycle. First off, we're looking at the economic cycle and if you think about that term, everyone just always sprouts around GDP, gross domestic product. It's all about the output of an economy. So the output of economy, if you think about it, it's all about the amount of hours people in your country are working multiplied by how productive and useful are they being with that time. That's it. So if you want to increase the output, it's a function of those two things. You either need to increase the number of hours 
or you need to increase the productivity per hour. So there's a whole bunch of long-term factors that increase those two parts of the equation. Your demographic movement, so if there's lots of people going from the country into the city, means that inside the city it might be more productive. It might be aspiration. So within a country, there's a big profit motive. Some countries rather than others are more aspirational to get richer than others. Your education, the level of people's knowledge in and how they can apply that knowledge. Your technology, innovation and automation and all these new technologies like AI to enable disruption. And then you got globalization, like how cooperative are the countries being with each other and are they helping each other out? So these are the types of things that impact over the long term. Now, over the very long term, there is a positive upward trajectory. So that sign graph we talked about that oscillates up and down is actually tilted upwards. Over the long term, things are slowly increasing. Things like, say, India's got a, a massive population, but if people are getting can get more educated and can increase their efficiency, over the long term, this is going to be shifting towards the positive. But of course, these things like education, like birth rates, like technology, they're not short-term things. These are over the spans of years and decades. But most uh, investors are focused much more on the short-term and the more immediate fluctuations. They're not looking at years and decades. They're looking at quarters and months. So whereas the long-term economic cycle is this long kind of gradual increase in improvement because of the reasons you mentioned, Asho, the short-term economic cycle, this is more the thing that oscillates up and down and it might be increasing rapidly or it might be decreasing rapidly probably due to more irrational reasons. So a couple of the things that impact on the short term, one is the willingness to work. So this is not a constant, this changes from time to time. So there are different conditions that either encourage or discourage people from seeking a place in the workforce. So we're talking about the unemployment rate, but we also talk about the underemployment rate. So perhaps if you know some people rather than working full time, time's good, they've had a bit of money saved up and they actually pull back and they're only, you know, they're working three or four days a week instead of five days a week. And consumption, that's another thing that's not really constant. When things are going really shit in the economy and you're a little bit scared, you're probably not going to book that extra trip to the other side of the world. You're probably not going to spend that little bit extra on the car because you're worried a little bit more worried about your job and what's happening in the future. So the spending fluctuates a lot more than all the employment and earnings even. So that's a simple high-level overview of the economics of the cycle. You've got the underlying long-term trend, which is affected by things like the birth rate, things like demographic movements, things like education, technology, aspiration. This is the slow, gradual trend upwards. Then we've got over the short term, we're talking about the willingness to work and consumption spending. These are the things that lead to those short-term fluctuations. We've got rapid increases followed by rapid decreases. Okay, so we just learned about what naturally happens with the economic cycle. Now we're going to look at the more controlling factors that the government and the central banks have on this cycle. So if you think about the governments, first of all, they've got a lot of responsibilities, right? They've got a lot of shit that they've got to get done and only a small portion of this is really related to economic matters. So they're charged when things are going really poorly and the economy is all sluggish. They need to do things to stimulate it, to get everyone a little bit more excited and spending more and have more money around for everybody. But on the other side of things, they need to start pulling things back when things are getting too hot and overheated, everyone's spending too much, they get to slow down the party. So the government's got two weapons in their arsenal. They've got tax and they've got spending. When the economy is going up, when we're heading up the cycle, people are making more money, which means they're getting taxed more. Also, because more people are employed, it means they're spending less on welfare. 
They might also have a few things that they can add in as additional things like in Australia, they had the, the mining super profit tax where when the mines were making a shitload of money, the government tried to take a bit of a slice to cool it down a bit to get extra tax. If you think about it the other way, when people go down the cycle, less incomes means less tax. And also, if people are getting unemployed, it means they're increasing their welfare spending. And then a few things, if you think about the in Australia in the GFC, they gave you know they gave everyone a thousand bucks, so that's extra welfare spending that they gave to people to try to stimulate when the cycle goes down. Mm. The ultimate topic under this heading and how the governments work, it comes down to national deficits. So back in the day, it was all about balanced budgets. They'd spend the same amount of money the governments would as they would have coming in in tax, so it would equal about zero. But over time, there's been a trend for governments to spend more money than they take in meaning that each year they're having a deficit and then the national debt is growing. So it's kind of been interesting because across the world, this resistance to how big the debt is, has kind of been on the way down. No one's really caring as much how much debt the government is in because every other country is doing it. There's kind of just a big party who can borrow more and more money. If you look at the graphs of the amount of the debt every country is in, it's exponential and it's almost quite ridiculous. Yeah, if that was an individual and you see this individual, every year they spend more than they make, they take out a personal loan, then they go and get a credit card, then they go and get a loan on their car. You'd think this person was very irresponsible for every year. Even if they're making more money, they're still spending more and more money. But when it comes to governments, we kind of just, that's the expected thing to do. They just keep pumping more money and the party's going on, the mm. markets are going up, everyone's profits are going up and they just keep that fuel on that fire. Yeah, absolutely. It's like every time the questions arise about how big the debt is, and how much more it should be, the answer is always the same. It's not much more than we have now, <laughs> but it's always in one direction, more debt. Yeah, you'd think you know, when, when the economy is going well, they should be saving a bit more money and then they've got extra buffer to spend more money when things are going poorly. But the trend more recently is that they're just spending more and more and more and they're never actually saving. So as you said, man, the governments have got those fiscal tools with spending and taxing, but then another influencer of how the economy is going is central banks. So the central banks don't like this cyclical nature of the economy where it's going all the way up and all the way down and they kind of want to just keep it somewhere in this sweet spot, somewhere just in the middle. So whenever you hear the words like RBA, Reserve Bank of Australia, BOJ, the Bank of Japan, the Federal Reserve in the US, the Bank of England, the ECB, the European Central Bank and so forth, all these acronyms are central banks in different parts of the world. So in terms of the history of the central bank, in the past, their role was to issue currency and then exchange that currency for a request for gold and silver. So that was sort of the, the original nature was they were sort of the middleman. They were looking after the gold. They were looking after the currency. And then over time, their role evolved to become controlling inflation. We know that over time, prices are gradually going up whether that is cost push inflation where the costs of everything goes up or demand pull inflation. You know, think about demand and supply. If people are buying more stuff and demand is higher than supply, then naturally the prices go up a little bit. And the role of the central bank was therefore to manage inflation to keep it somewhat controlled. So when things are going extremely well in the economy and the central banks want to cool it, they might raise interest rates. That means when you borrow money, you have to pay more on it. So you're probably going to borrow a little bit less money, meaning there's less money going through the economy and stimulating things. But when things are going really poorly, 
what they do is they'll reduce interest rates. Then you think, all right, shit, it's so cheap to borrow so much money. So they go out and lend a lot of money, then you spend it in the economy and then the economy improves. So a big issue here has come from the fact that the role of the central banks has evolved once again. So firstly, it evolved from managing gold and currency to then controlling inflation. Now it's evolved again to not only controlling inflation, but also managing unemployment levels. And the issue here is that these two things sort of go in opposite directions to each other. When inflation is going up, it means that the economy is going well, which means unemployment is going down. But then when inflation is going down, it means the economy is going poorly, which means then unemployment is on the rise. So they've got these two things that they're trying to manage. By reducing interest rates, they're reducing unemployment, but that means increasing inflation. Then if they increase interest rates, it means they're reducing inflation, but that also means that unemployment will go up. So if you think about what's happened in the last decade or so, inflation's actually been very low. So what the central banks have been trying to do is lower interest rates. So that means there's more people spending in the economy and that means that there's the lower unemployment rate and this kind of reflects what inflation is. And then also keep inflation in that nice band which they're really targeting. But the issue has been more recently that they've had to keep lowering and lowering interest rates. So it's a lever that they can pull at most times in history, but recently it's hit the point where interest rates have been hit rock bottom. So using the analogy used earlier, like bullets in the gun, you've got all these bullets you can fire off, but what happens when all the bullets are gone? Yeah, if you look at it, and I actually saw a thing on the news the other day, I don't normally watch the news, but I saw this graph pop up. They were saying that before the GFC, you know, interest rates were pretty high, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10%, and then the GFC came along, and so one of their things to stimulate the economy was to drop interest rates. So they did that, stimulated the economy, sort of bounced back eventually over a number of years. You would think though, as the economy goes up, they should be increasing interest rates. But because of the interest rates are so low now, when the next crisis comes along, when coronavirus hits, they can't reduce interest rates anymore. It's at as low as they can, you know, Australia's at the lowest point in history, basically. They can't really go much lower than zero. Mm. So because they've got no bullets in the chamber, they've gotten a bit creative, the central banks around the world. And it started with Japan a long time ago, but then... Uh, the US, which were quite famous for pulling out QE, quantitative easing, during the GFC when they had no bullets left and now coronavirus hits, there's probably no central banks around the world who got any bullets left. So they're doing this thing called quantitative easing. So they're looking for a way to stimulate the economy and get more money pushed around. So if you think about what people can invest in, you've got things like bonds and you've got things like shares or you might just have your money as cash or you know you can do whatever you want with your money. So what central banks do is they might go out and buy government bonds and this is what quantitative easing is because there's so much money going into that from the government. All of a sudden, that looks like a pretty shit investment. So there's no one buying government bonds anymore so they might go out and chase things that are going to give them a better return. So they might buy shares instead and the people who are in government bonds, they might buy shares as well or now shares are such a high price, some people might sell the shares and then they've got more cash. So in a roundabout way, by the central banks buying government bonds, people get pushed out in a way and eventually more money enters the economy. But when the central bank buys the bond from the government, basically the government has to pay the central bank at some stage. So again, the debts in the government is skyrocketing around the world and where's this going to lead? Uh, it's going to be interesting in our lifetime, I think. <laughs> it certainly will be. 
uh, and probably not interesting in a good way, I don't think. No. <laughs> <laughs> so as a recap of what we've spoken about, so obviously there's economic cycles. We've got times in the short term where the economy is booming and times where the economy is busting. The government can then try to control these, try to curb the highs and curb the lows. The government can increase taxes and decrease their spending when the economy is good or when the economy needs a bit of a boost, they can decrease their taxes and increase their spending. Similarly, the central bank has a bit of control as well. When the economy needs a bit of a boost, they can decrease their interest rates. But now that interest rates are so low, they can't be decreased anymore. They've uh, created this quantitative easing, which is their new way of trying to stimulate the economy. Next, we're going to look at the credit cycle. So credit being when you lend someone money, you're lending them credit. And the person who gets the money, they're going into debt. So credit and debt can be used interchangeably. Now, this is extremely important. If you think about what we were saying earlier, how much debt is going on around in the world in terms of private, just your household borrowing money to buy a house or a car or your credit card or the government's going into debt, you'd think intuitively that when you borrow money from someone, it's equal the amount of credit. So you'd think the amount of credit is exactly equal to the amount of debt around the world. Yeah, well, just logically, if you think if... If you borrow money off the bank, it means the bank has got money and they lend you, they extend that debt to you. So you're negative, they're positive, and they cancel each other out. You think that makes sense? Mm. So you think that if some countries are in debt, it means they're in debt to other countries who are in the in the net positive. But I'm looking at this world. I just googled world debt clock. Pretty much every country is in the red. How can every country be in debt? <laughs> who are they in debt to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How is everyone in debt? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what happens when you borrow money? A lot of the time with the bank, you're inventing money and yeah. there's a lot more <laughs> debt around the world than there is money to actually pay it back. Yeah, well, I'm seeing here that like the UK, their debt to GDP ratio is like 260%. So it means for all the money they make in a single year, mm. they need to make three years just to pay off their debt. Yeah. So basically, if everyone paid off all the debts in the world, there wouldn't be it's enough to pay it off it's by still be debt. 10 times. <laughs> like, it doesn't so, make sense. Does so it? This, it doesn't. So this story means that there's no one's ever going to actually pay off this debt mm. and no one's really calling it out, but everyone's just moving along with it. But as you can tell, it's really important for the credit cycle. The amount of money that's able to be borrowed out directly stimulates the economy. If everyone can borrow money easily, things are going up, up and up. But if you can't borrow money whatsoever, then there's no money to actually put back into the economy. So Marx uses the metaphor of a window. In short, the the window sometimes can be open where you can borrow money and sometimes it's closed where you can't even borrow any money. So when the window is open, financing is plentiful, it's easy to get money. You get that money, you can go out and spend it, you can go out and invest it. But then as the window starts to close, it closes a little bit more, financing becomes a little bit more scarce, it becomes a little bit harder to get. And he says that the window can go from open to closed very quickly. If you think of the the massive big crashes around the world, as soon as there starts to be a little bit of fear and a little bit of panic, the banks are going to slam that window shut. And this can be a big problem because if a lot of people when they go into debt, they're using the kick the can strategy. Oh, like you're borrowing <laughs> money and you go, oh, I'll just pay it off later and then you might borrow more money to pay off that money. (laughs) But there's a big issue when the credit 
window shuts and you can't borrow money, all of a sudden that debt happens and then you go into bankruptcy and you start defaulting on the debt and then, you know, there's a negative feedback loop. Yeah, well, if you bring it to the individual level, maybe you get a credit card and then you want to buy a car, so you get a car loan and then you get a personal loan to pay off the credit card. You're just kicking the can down the road. That's at the the small individual level, but at the big company level, companies have got massive, massive, massive loans that they take out that they can operate and then when that debt comes due, in order to pay off their first round of debt, they get some new debt to pay off that debt. So they're just kicking the can down the road. So the issue is that if the banks slam that window shut, they can't get any more debt, their debt becomes due and if they can't use more debt to pay off the first debt, then ultimately they're bankrupt. And take it from there and looking at it as a cycle when they go bankrupt and and they default on their debt, that means the bank's got no money coming in because they've got no money coming in, they can't lend any more money out, meaning they can't lend it out to people who need to pay it off to... Mm to pay for their debt so they default so then there's a negative feedback loop in the cycle and I think this is what we're seeing right now at the bottom of the cycle there's a lot of banks right now a lot more cautious to lend out money right now because as things crash and people default they've got actually less money to give out in the first place. Yeah, as you say, it is that negative feedback loop, that downward spiral where there's a bit of fear out there, there's a bit of uncertainty, so they start to close up that window. But by closing up the window, if they don't give out more money, it means some people are going to go bankrupt, they're not going to get more money in. In turn, they can't give more money out, and again, more people go bankrupt, so they can't get any more money in, and this negative feedback cycle, is this doom loop is just spiraling downwards and downwards. So that's on the way down, we've kind of gone into a fair bit of detail, but then there's a point reached where it's maximum pessimism and then it starts to head the other way on this pendulum. So where the banks were really worried about risk beforehand, you know, they might start lending a little bit more money out and then because of this, there's more money going around in the economy and because it's improving, everyone's paying down their debts so the banks have got more money in their balance sheet (laughs) so they can lend more money out. And then all of a sudden, there's competition between all of the banks to lend more money out for lower interest rates and lower risk premiums for lending that money out. So then it's very easy to lend money out, very easy to borrow it, and the credit window is wide open. But all of a sudden, there's more risk in the economy because everyone's borrowing so much more money. So on the pendulum, it's going to again hit that point where there's too much debt out there and it's hit a, a level where you know Joe Blow down the pub who's working two days a week as an Uber driver is buying a house because it's so easy to borrow money. All of a sudden, that person defaults on the debt. And again, back to down to the doom loop. So moving on from the credit cycle into something that everyone's very familiar with, and that's the real estate cycle. There's been some very notable real estate crashes, but when everything is going up, when the economy is positive, when the economic cycle is going up, when the credit cycle is going up, it's easier to borrow money, real estate prices are going up, everybody is fueled by greed and then their their gross generalizations and rationalizing sweeping statements that things you hear all the time, the cliches, uh, they're not making any more land, you can always live in it, it's a hedge against inflation. People, when the, when the market is going up, they're always going to say real estate's a great investment because at any time, real mm. estate is always going to be going up. Yeah, there's a, there's a hint of truth in all those statements, but eventually what people learn, regardless of the merit behind these sweeping statements, it's not going to protect an investment that was made at too high a price. It's like that idea of value investing, that it doesn't matter how good the asset really is if you're paying a higher price for it. So inevitably, even in real estate, even when you think everything's going up, even when you think they're not making any more land, even when you think real estate always doubles every seven to 10 years, inevitably there is a cycle in real estate as well. 
So look in the very long-term cycle of it. The longest study that we've got in history was by Robert Schiller, and he looked at 50 years intervals of growth. So your rich uncle who flipped the property and made a killing with all the equity. So even there's a lot of people, especially in Australia, who are just preaching the gospel of real estate about how good an investment it is. If you look at this study, it says something different. Between 1628 and 1973, real property prices adjusted for inflation went up only 0.2% per year. So yes, house prices do double, but not every 7 to 10 years using these numbers, the Schiller Index. They double every 350 years or so, looking at the long-term cycle. Yeah, so looking at that over the long term, that's a fair counter-argument to property doubles every 7 to 10 years. When you take into account inflation, it actually doubles every 350 years or so. But of course, as part of this cycle, when optimism is high, when the economy is going well, when the prices are going up, when finance is easier to get, people are going to be buying more and more property. And in fact, they're also going to be initiating big construction projects. Maybe they buy the the old, the perfect corner lot with the shitty old house on it. They knock it down and build it four apartments on it. They're going to be doing these big projects when optimism is high and capital is easy to get. Yeah, if you think about three years ago when things were booming in Australia and probably around the world to an extent, mate, there's cranes everywhere. You look mm. into the city and it's just absolutely filled with cranes and everyone's developing everything. And that's because at the time, yes, things are going very well and people are spending higher prices. But the problem with property is there's a lag effect. So despite being designed and looking to build in those good times, when they actually hit the market, they might hit a time when it's overly pessimistic. And ironically, that's actually probably what's happening right now. The, when the cranes were filling the sky three years ago, a lot of those properties are hitting the market right now at a time of pessimism. Yeah, if you think of a big you know, 40-story office building in the city uh, that you know, six, eight years ago when they started this project, it looked like an awesome investment where they were going to make so much money. If they're trying to sell them or rent them out now, everybody's working at home, nobody's in the city, there's no one to fill those offices. It's turned out to be a pretty, pretty shocking decision. And this is why it's really important to read Howard Marx's book because right now is probably the best time to actually be getting into real estate. So mm. his company, they actually, during the GFC, they went hard into real estate realizing that no one else is doing it. So despite it looking like a shit investment, it's the best time to buy it when everyone thinks that, you know, going against the pendulum of investor psychology, which we'll talk about soon. Yeah. On the opposite case, if, if right now, if uh, you've got good interest rates and nobody else is doing it, it's, it could be a good time to start your project now because when that project finishes in three to five years, when things have recovered and it's looking good again, maybe the prices uh, have gone up. So you've started your project at a time where prices were low and you finish it at a time when prices are high. Now we're going to have a look at the investor psychology of the markets. So you think about what we've covered onto this episode. We've gone through the government, fiscal stimulus where they can spend and tax more and you've got central banks, you've got the credit window, you've got the real estate cycle. Now all of this is really dependent on the investor psychology. If the people in the population are really optimistic, that's going to fuel things on the upside. But when things are pessimistic and everyone thinks doom and gloom, then things are going to be fueled on the downside. So it's a bit like a fuel on the fire, the investor psychology, in further exacerbating a negative or a positive feedback loop. 
And because we've done so many episodes on how irrational we are, often we overreact to things. We see good news headlines, so we go out and spend more money. We go buy that fancy car. We take out that loan. We buy a new house. But then as soon as we get a small hint that things aren't going so well, we quickly start spending less. So often in investor psychology, small changes in our psychology can have massive impacts on how we treat the cycle. So a simple objective thing might happen out there in the world but investor psychology can warp it around up, positive, negative, optimistic, pessimistic, whatever. So, for example, there's a quote here on Wall Street today, news of lower interest rates sent the stock market up, but then the expectation that these rates would be inflationary sent the market down until the realization that lower interest rates might stimulate the sluggish economy, push the market up, before it all ultimately went down on fears that an overheated economy would lead to a reimposition of higher interest rates. <laughs> Mate, so just one small thing happened <laughs> and investor psychology just warps it in any direction it wants. It's very funny. We can flick from greed to fear so quickly. It starts out that lower interest rates, okay, that's a good thing. The market's going to go up, but then hang on. If there's lower interest rates, eventually they're going to go back up, which is a bad thing. So maybe we shouldn't be buying. So it's so uh, funny how quickly we can switch between greed and fear and how quickly we can warp and extrapolate uh, objective news into our subjective psychologies. So one of the biggest changes we go through is our attitude towards risk. So when things are going really well, most people are saying, risk, what is risk? Look how well things have been going, you know, in terms of property, maybe in Australia, your cousin has been killing it, got three on the go and they're thinking property only goes up forever. It's actually a low risk investment. They're saying the more risk I take, the more money I make. When everything's going up, people just want more and more and more risk. But of course, when things start to go down, they think, I don't want any risk. I don't care if I never make a single extra dollar from my investments. I just don't want to lose any more. Get me the hell out of the market. I don't want any risk. This is what investors get wrong most of the time is they take on a lot of risk at the wrong times and they don't take on enough risk when things are not going well. Again, if you see your friends making a lot of money in something, you feel like you want to just jump in and you think it's low risk because everyone else is doing it. But the other way, when everyone's losing and everyone's pessimistic, that's actually when the bargains are out there and you should be taking on the risk. As a quick overview of the upward cycle, so there's positive events and there's positive news. That leads to increased optimism. Increased optimism means people are more risk tolerant. More risk tolerance means that people are charging a lower risk premium. It means they're willing to take on more risk for smaller returns. Because people aren't demanding these risk premiums, it means the returns are less. It means risk is actually going up. And so because the prices are going up, Marx actually says that risk is actually high when prices are high, which I think is probably something interesting and somewhat counterintuitive that he's saying as the prices increase, the risk is actually increasing. And then conversely, when it all crashes, when everyone thinks everything's so risky right now, the risk is actually lower because mm. the prices are lower. So if you look at the case study of the global financial crisis, it really represents a lot of what's been spoken about in this book and packages it together in terms of how market cycles work. If you think back to the credit cycle, so what the Fed did is they push interest rates down, meaning a lot of people could go out there and borrow more money to buy property. And because they were doing that, everyone thought property only went up. So because of that, the banks lent out more and more money in this upward cycle. Yeah, one uh, classic example of this is the CEO of Citigroup, Charles Prince, not to be confused with Prince Charles, but mm. Charles Prince. In 2007, you know, we're almost at the high point here. We're virtually on the edge of the GFC crash. He said, 
look, when the music stops in terms of liquidity, things will get complicated. But as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. We're still yeah. dancing. So basically saying the party's rolling on, people are giving out money, money's flowing everywhere, prices are going up, people are giving out more money and he's saying we want to be a part of this. Big Charles Prince, he just wants to give out more and more and more money. Mm. He said, look, when, when liquidity slows down, things are going to get complicated but he's not worried about that. He just wants to get up and dance. Yeah, if you're a bank trying to make as much money as you can and the other bank down there is like lending it out to your Joe Blow. Imagine, imagine if the, the bank CEO said, look, shit's getting too risky. We've got to tighten up. In the middle of like the biggest run up ever, the investors are going to say, what the hell is wrong with you? Why, you? why are you not giving out money to make money in this point in time? So obviously at this moment, those lending money to property, it was actually a high yield investment because property was going up. So they packaged it into mortgage-backed securities, so something they could trade on financial markets because it looks like it was a low-risk, high-yield investment. Everyone started pouring money into this investment, so there was a demand for, for everything here because it was going up at such a high rate, meaning that the banks had to find more people to lend money to so they could do mortgage-backed securities mm. because everyone thought it was a low-risk, high-yield investment. But as we're learning from Marx, there's no such thing as a low-risk, high-yield investment it's high yield because of the risk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. And what, what started happening, as you say, they're looking for more people to give more money to, so they're sort of decreasing their lending standards. Uh, banks in the UK sort of started this and then it spread everywhere was what they used to lend, say, three or three and a half times your annual salary. That's how much they willingly lend out for you to buy a property. They increased that so they could now lend up to five times your salary. So they've basically increased the amount you can borrow by almost 50%. Mm. That's a fair bit of increase. So then once you're going to buy more stuff, you're buying more expensive properties, you're getting more loans, you're, you're trading up to, to buy a few extra bedrooms. So they're really fueling this fire. So it is easy to judge this in the benefit of hindsight. But if you think <laughs> back to these people, right, they're really believing that trees grow to the sky, mm. that this investment is exponentially going to go into through the roof and beyond. But in reality, everything is cyclical and trees don't grow to the sky and things don't go to zero either. So naturally, things got down and people started defaulting on their loans because they couldn't pay it. The wrong people were lent money and then the downward cycle actually started to hit. Yeah, and then as part of the big crash, it's going down, it's going down. People think, oh, the big banks are going bust, individuals are going bust. Basically, real estate's going to be crashing forever. Everyone's selling their shit, everyone's panicking, everyone's trying to get out of the market. But as you say, it's irrational to think that it's going to keep going exponentially up forever. It's also irrational to think that this cycle is going to continue down to zero. So it's important to understand that there is cycles in everything. There are times where it's going to curve off and start to drop back down. And there are times when that downward swing is going to start to curve off and start to trend back up again. So I guess the big question after hearing this whole episode is, when is the time to buy? Is it when everyone out there is overly optimistic and your uncle at the barbecue is telling you how good <laughs> these investments are? Is that the time to do it? Or is it the time when everyone out there is really pessimistic and everyone's saying that the world's going to end or using the analogy of a falling knife, you know, everyone's saying, I don't want to catch a falling knife when the market's going downwards. People think they're probably just going to wait until that goes down and then buy in. Yeah, people think it's too risky to catch the falling knife. You know, it's trending downwards right now. We've got no way to know when it's going to stop. So I'm not going to buy now. I'm going to buy when it's at the bottom. But I think uh, it's very quickly going to turn from going down to, and you know, this is, it's too risky to buy. Let's not buy yet. We're not at the bottom yet. And then very quickly, it's going to be like, oh, shit, I missed it. Mm, exactly. So when the dust and the investor's nerves are settled, all the bargains are probably gone and you're a yeah. little bit too late. So 
buying when the nerves are high is probably a good time to do it. And you get to think about two different risks through all of this. I mean, the first risk here, it's very obvious. Everyone doesn't want to lose money. But the other risk I think a lot of people miss is when things are going really down, the risk here is missing opportunity at buying things really cheap. So when everything seems to be going up and everybody is irrationally optimistic, people forget They don't think that there is going to be this reversion back to the midpoint. They don't think the cycle is going to turn back towards that magnetic pull of the middle. And that's probably not the time to get in. That's when banks are lending too much. Everybody's chasing high returns and neglecting the risk. But of course, when there's so much pessimism, the banks are tightening up, the investments seem to be going down. People also forget that eventually it is going to go back to the midpoint. So we've been speaking a lot about the financial markets and investment, but this does apply to a lot of different other areas like launching your startup or your business. When is the right time to launch it? Like if we look at the analogy of a cafe, right now we're in Albert Park, uh, it's probably so much competition, go back 12 months about who's going to make you your coffee and and serve you your breakfast in the morning. If you're going to start a cafe, are you going to start it then when there's so much competition for customers? Or how about when things are really pessimistic, when there's a whole bunch of cafes that have gone under, is that the time to go in? So after reading this book, you're probably better off launching your business in those moments when there's extreme pessimism and there's less competition in the long term for business. There are countless examples of this. If you look at General Electric, General Motors and Disney, they all started during the big depression. If you look at other big companies, IBM, Microsoft, Google, all of these companies were actually born in the midst when they were at the bottom of the cycle. When everybody thought it was too risky to try something new, when everyone thought it was too risky to start a business, these were the ones that actually started at the bottom of the cycle. Another thing, if you think right now, you know, nobody's going on international travel. The airlines are in a lot of trouble. They've got a shitload of debt. If they can't renew their debt, they're going to go bust. You know, so if there's five major airlines Uh, and they're all competing, if three of them go bust, the ones that actually remain are probably in a better position. They're no longer competing with four other big airlines. They're only competing with each other. Another area, as we said, if you're going to build real estate or develop land or anything like that, you're probably best off starting the process now when no one else is doing it because when you hit the market, there's going to be less competition and there's actually going to be a lot of optimism out when it does hit the market. If you apply this thinking of the cycles to your job, as well. Things right now might seem like uh, they're at the bottom of the cycle. It's hard to get a job. It's not worth taking any risks. But actually during this time, when everybody else is scared, when everybody's trying to cling to some kind of safety, it's probably the best time to go out and learn new things, develop new skills, so that once the cycle does inevitably return to that midpoint and starts heading up again, you're going to be prepared to capitalize it with your new skills and knowledge. I think it is a philosophy, this book, man, to actually take out for the rest of your life. When everyone's being pessimistic and really scared, that is the time to be most aggressive and actually be optimistic. So being a contrarian to whatever the pendulum doing is actually going to give you the highest returns. Mm-hmm.